1895. Latter-day Saint women in Utah who once already held the right to vote are working with national suffragists to see that their right to vote is restored. But not all saints share the same opinion on this issue. B.H. Roberts runs for and is elected to the United States Congress while insulting many women in the church. These stories of political interest and more are next in Chapter 3, The Path of Right. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. And today we're going to be discussing Chapter 3, The Path of Right. Joining us today is Cherry Silver, who is working with the Church Historians Press as a co-editor of the Emmeline B. Wells Diaries. We are also joined by Tiffany Bowles, who is the Associate Curator of Education in the Church History Museum. Thank you both for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. We're looking forward to talking with you. Well, I think our listeners might be interested to know a little bit more about both of you. Could you tell us about some of the projects and work that you're involved in with regards to church history? Sure. I have worked at the Church History Museum for nine years now, and I had the opportunity to be the team lead for an exhibit that we had there at the museum called Sisters for Suffrage, How Utah Women Won the Vote. And the exhibit was really meant to highlight the 150th anniversary of when Utah women first voted in 1870. And so that anniversary was in 2020. Unfortunately, the museum was closed for most of 2020, but we got a little bit more time with the exhibit through 2021. But that was a wonderful experience, getting to learn more about the important roles that Utah women played in the suffrage movement. And I have been working with the Emmeline Wells Diaries with my co-editor, Cherie Bench, for nearly 20 years now. Emmeline Wells wrote 47 diaries. They're in her handwriting. She was a school teacher, and so she wrote and spelled quite well for a 19th century woman. And she was a great observer of things around her. Her diaries stretch from 1844, when she went to Nauvoo and met Joseph Smith, to 1920, just before her death, when she was fifth general president of the Relief Society. And we are grateful to be able to track much of women's efforts to express themselves and to earn their civic rights through this personality and the writings of Emmeline. Brilliant. Thank you both for joining us. Let's begin first by talking a little bit about women's suffrage. Of course, in this chapter, we're getting to read some really exciting accounts of Latter-day Saint women playing important roles in the push for greater rights and participation in civic affairs. Tiffany, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about why so many Latter-day Saint women were involved in the suffrage movement. That's a great question. So Latter-day Saint women, ever since the Relief Society was founded in 1842, they always took an active role in both church and community. And so it seemed quite natural for them to want to participate as voting citizens. 
And so Utah women were actually the first to legally vote in a United States election in 1870. And they enjoyed the right to vote for 17 years until it was taken away by some federal legislation meant to target the practice of plural marriage. And so they lost the right to vote. And then when we come into this chapter here in Saints, it's 1895, and the Utah women are working very hard amongst themselves and with national suffragists to see their right to vote restored. So what a lot of people don't realize is that before most women in the United States could vote even once, Utah women had actually fought for the right to vote twice, which is a a pretty cool distinction to have. I like Tiffany saying that they worked hard. In 1889, they organized the Utah Women's Suffrage Association. That meant they organized chapters of women to talk about the right to vote in 19 counties around Utah. They gave demonstrations, they wrote petitions, they collected money, and they were supporting the national effort That gave them a chance to meet people like Susan B. Anthony, who championed what they were doing. 1895 then was a climax, but they knew there were going to be difficulties when it came chance for statehood, and they were prepared. Well, they had a lot of obstacles, and you've mentioned the obstacles that they had outside of the state as the state was working towards statehood. But what was the reaction of church leaders? Well, I think they were very happy to have the support of a counselor in the church presidency, Joseph F. Smith. He attended the important Women's Relief Society Conference of April 1895, described well in this chapter. But as a lead-up, the general presidency of the church urged members to join the two national political parties— Democrats and Republicans. Emmeline did it in one, some of her friends did it in the other. But they made sure that their women were ready to vote and knew what the issues were. When the state was granted the right to write a constitution and apply for statehood, that came from the National Congress in 1894. So nine months before, these women knew it was coming. And their friend Susan B. Anthony wrote a significant letter to Emmeline saying, do not stop. You must continue to campaign county by county, delegate by delegate to this constitutional convention and remind these men that they have supported the women's vote over these past years and they must do it again. Do not let them put the word male into suffrage for the Constitution, or you will find, said Susan B. Anthony, that you could never get rid of it. Emmeline was fortunate in having a son-in-law, Septimus Sears, who was part of the legislature, and another son-in-law, John Q. Cannon, who was editor of the Deseret News. So she rushed to John Q. Cannon with this letter from Susan B. Anthony to be published in the city press. And the words start to spread that these women were paying attention and they would follow their delegates to the end. And I'll just add that there were church leaders on both sides of the suffrage issue at the 1895 Constitutional Convention. Perhaps most notably, Orson F. Whitney, 
was in favor of suffrage, and he spoke very vocally and eloquently in support of suffrage. On the other side, B.H. Roberts, another church leader, came out against women's suffrage at the convention, which surprised and upset some people. So there was some interesting back and forth there. Another great advocate for the women was Franklin S. Richards, whose mother was in the General Relief Society presidency and whose wife's Emily was a longtime suffrage advocate. One of the things I really like about this story is the commitment of the sisters to keep pushing for these rights. Perhaps we might talk a little bit about the ways in which they gathered support. In, in the chapter, we learn a little bit about how husbands are kind of roped in to help them in, in certain times, but they also had their own ways of gathering support and making their case for why they should be included. One of those is the women's exponent. For those who may be unfamiliar with it, Tiffany, could you tell us a little bit about the women's exponent and the role that it played in, in women's suffrage? Sure. So the women's exponent was a newspaper that was published by Relief Society sisters, most notably, and Cherry could speak to this, Emmeline Wells. She wasn't the first editor, but she was a longtime editor of the women's exponent. And it was really a valuable tool that the sisters used to share ideas, and they would publish different things that they had said. And this is really how they communicated their ideas to each other. And uh, Emmeline Wells was such an important integral part of that. As I mentioned before, they had local chapters of the Women's Suffrage Association. Oftentimes, the general board members would travel to a, an outlying town, maybe Nephi, Utah, and they would hold a Relief Society conference, and then they would organize a political chapter in the evening afterwards. So they combined their two roles. They felt if women had helped their men through all the building of their communities and the growth of the church, the men could help the women gain this vital civic right. There are obviously a large number of people in Utah at the time who were supportive of this measure, but there were people, including B.H. Roberts and, and other men, both inside the church and outside the church, who were opposed to women's suffrage. What were some of the reasons that they gave for their opposition? If that's okay, I'll take the first shot at this one. So B.H. Roberts' main argument against suffrage was that he was afraid if suffrage was included in the state constitution, then there would be enough people opposed to the Constitution that Utah wouldn't achieve statehood. So he thought that it could jeopardize Utah statehood. But he also talked about how women were too pure for politics. And so he didn't want women to have to deal with those things. But there were some other men at the convention who agreed with B.H. Roberts, who expressed some different arguments against suffrage. One of these men was the youngest attendee of the Constitutional Convention. He was 25 years old at the time. His name was Anthony Knut Lund, and he was actually the son of Anthon Lund, who we meet here in this chapter. So Anthony, while his dad was over in Europe, Anthony attended the State Constitutional Convention. And his argument against suffrage, he said, 
Equal suffrage would disturb domestic tranquility. <laughs> and this was an interesting argument for him to make because he was not married. <laughs> and some of the other delegates pointed out the fact that he wasn't married. And there's a fun back and forth where he said, well, when he does marry, he's going to find out first whether or not the woman that he is considering marrying, if she supports suffrage and she'll have to not support suffrage. So a, a delegate from Utah County said, well, you won't have to worry about finding a wife in Utah County then because they all support suffrage. And so there's, there's quite a bit of interesting back and forth. But I think really at the heart of the argument against suffrage, you could say that it could put statehood in jeopardy. But a lot of the men believed that women's place was in the home, focused on her family. And they didn't really think that women could focus on their family and be involved in politics. I concur that those were the arguments. I love the paragraph you have in the chapter quoting from the woman's exponent where Emmeline in an editorial says, it is pitiful to see how men opposed to women's suffrage try to make the woman believe it is because they worship them so and think them far too good. And then she reminded them, the women of Utah have never failed in any time of trial of whatever name or nature, and their integrity is unquestioned. Her argument and those men who supported suffrage would go ahead and said, these women have voted for 17 years. Have they supported you, you men, your goals? Of course they have. Yeah, it's amazing that they had to fight so hard twice when <laughs> I feel like they proved their success over, their, over the <laughs> years. Yes. Nicely said. So women's suffrage is a topic of interest in many countries around the world. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, we have different movements pushing for the rights to vote. What were some of the other ways that Latter-day Saint women pushed for the right to vote? Uh, 20 years later, when Alice Paul began to lead the movement to encourage Congress to back their amendment, women picketed around the White House and tied themselves to the fence. And there were some Utah women who went back to join that physical protest. But this was after some of our present-day characters in this chapter were in retirement, so they were not part of that movement. I always look at the suffrage movement kind of in two waves. You've got, you've got the Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wave, and then the Alice Paul wave. And just like that, there were two different generations of suffrage women in Utah. And just from what I've read in newspapers and things, I got the feeling that most Utah women didn't really support the more extreme means of trying to pass the suffrage amendment. They were more in support of using words, newspapers, speeches, things like that to get their message across. That's at least the feeling that I've gotten. I think so too. And when it did pass, they were exuberant. They wrote immediately to their national mentors and said, this is passed in the Constitutional Convention, and then in November when it went before the public and it passed, they were ecstatic and telegraphed back to Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Now you can rejoice with us, and they did. The uh, bittersweet part of it 
is that the national women planned a big celebration for Utah in late January 1896. And Emily Richards went. Her husband, of course, supported the passage. But Emmeline Wells did not have money to travel. And so while she kept hoping, hoping that someone would sponsor her trip, she remained in Utah while a few others went back to celebrate with their national friends. Well, Cherry, you did an episode for the Latter-day Saint Women podcast about Emmeline Wells's life. And I just think our listeners might be interested in referring back to that episode to just learn more about her background, other things that she accomplished. So we'll link to that in the show notes, but I just wanted to share that with our listeners. There's always something dramatic to say about Emmeline Wells. Thank you for <laughs> absolutely opening that up. Of course, now that the Utah women are able to vote again, that's a pretty significant development, but seems to have this effect on the church leadership. And we still find that some of these brethren are divided on political issues. So although the, the question of women's suffrage is answered for now, at least, we see the likes of B.H. Roberts, who are in church office, but also seeking political office. And we have this tension between Democrats and Republicans. And so we, we become introduced to the political manifesto. And Cherry, I wonder if you could just provide a bit of an overview for our readers who may be struggling to get their heads around what this is and what it meant for the church. <laughs> For many years, George Cannon had been the official Utah delegate to Congress when they were still a territory. Now that they were a state, they could elect congressmen and send senators back. So those were important offices. And it seemed logical that some members of the church and holding office would want to be those important delegates again. In fact, George Cannon may have thought of it for himself. But his son, Frank, who is not a church official, went back as one of our first senators. Now, B.H. Roberts was a member of the presidency of the 70. And he, along with Moses Thatcher, who is a member of the Quorum of the 12, were strongly interested in politics and wanted to run. B.H. Roberts did run and was elected as a congressman from Utah. However, at that time, he was not only a church official, but he was a practicing polygamist. And his adversaries, particularly groups of religious people who felt this was untimely and insulting, started a literary campaign against his being seated in Congress. Our friend Emmeline Wells was still a voice for the women in the state. And even when B.H. Roberts began to run, she was astounded. She said, do you imagine how our women feel about this? Quoting from her diary, he was nominated yesterday and the women of the state generally feel it is an insult that women are not being treated with much consideration. Men want to hold on to these offices but the men like Roberts are not really representing the women of the state. Then he ran and he was elected. And that was devastating to Emmeline Wells. How can he do this when he was so anti-suffrage? How can he be our state representative? 
And I would like to just add a little note to that. Actually, after B.H. Roberts was elected, some women from Utah attended the National Council of Women meeting in Washington, D.C. in 1899. And they were put in a really awkward position because the leadership at that council meeting told them that they either needed to denounce B.H. Roberts and the practice of polygamy or forfeit their membership in the council. So the women were put in a really awkward spot. Surely many of them thought it might be kind of nice to exact their revenge on BH by denouncing him, but they didn't want to denounce plural marriage publicly. And so they were actually rescued from that situation by Susan B. Anthony, who said, many members of Congress violate the laws of monogamous marriages. So why should we go out to Utah and seek out a man to punish? And so there was still this interesting tension between women and B.H. Roberts, but they knew that they needed to, for the image of the church, they needed to maybe try to mend some of those fissures in their public appearance. You described that very well. And we have some insight that the national leaders put Emmeline Wells and a representative from the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association, Ann M. Cannon, onto the resolution committee. And this gave them a chance to do their backroom negotiating, at which these women were expert. And what they came up with was a different resolution. Instead of calling out B.H. Roberts for hoping to be seated in the Congress, they called out any lawbreaker saying the women should not support him in a congressional seat. And that passed. So in a way, they were still doing what they didn't want to have to do, spending days debating this issue, but they were able to soften the attack because the church was not named and B.H. Roberts himself was not named. Some pretty amazing women here who are very alert and aware to the debates that are taking place and also the sensitivities around them. Now, these are Latter-day Saints who are wanting to make changes in their society, but they're also trying to be sensitive to their leaders. And we know as, as this chapter goes on that, that B.H. Roberts and Moses Thatcher come to different conclusions with how they themselves are going to reconcile with with their peers in church leadership. So I think in this sense, we've got some pretty wise women who are setting the pace for how to balance politics and religion and civic responsibility. And I do love that when I read in the chapter that the women were so active in Relief Society and they got to have such prominent voices in their communities and in these Relief Society gatherings, that they just wanted that to continue. And they wanted to be active in their state and in politics. And it's so interesting looking back now and seeing out of necessity that the church members had to create the political manifesto. They had to be so involved. May I just say, Shalin, that these women didn't act on their own. When this issue came up of the Roberts election, they went right to the church office headquarters and they talked at that time with President Cannon and said, give us your advice. What do you want us to do? 
And when they had that comradeship, that agreement, then the women went ahead. It's amazing that they had that support. Well, the necessity of the political manifesto, and the the political manifesto was new to me, and I know that you provided that summary about it. And I'm wondering how that affected church leadership and other decisions moving forward. That's a really good question. Jerry, do you have any insight on that? Well, it took them about six months to get to that manifesto. First, Joseph F. Smith kind of sounded it out after this election in some smaller groups. And then they wrote it up for the next general conference time just to give some boundaries, just to remind church members that their callings in the church were sacred and that they should not be setting them aside for political glory or even political service. However, that was 1898-99. Reed Smoot ran for the Senate in 1904, and he was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. He went to his church leaders first to ask how they felt about his running and did it with their backing. But it was still a very stressful time because his membership in the Senate was challenged and many of them had to go back to testify, including B.H. Roberts, who testified mainly that he was still a polygamist. And Joseph F. Smith, who then was president of the church, who had to talk about how the church was allowing the political parties to go ahead and run the government and that the church was not trying to micromanage the state. And I think it's interesting how the church didn't necessarily want all of this added scrutiny that you get when you're in politics. (laughs) And so by entering the political world, members of the church were both increasing interest in the church, but also scrutiny of the church. And so it was an important step forward for the church and for the state of Utah for church leaders to be involved in politics. But it was also, as Cherry mentioned, it was a difficult time as well. And as Tiffany says, they were conscious of public opinion. And it was decided early in Utah that they would have two senators. One would not be a member of the church. One would be a Latter-day Saint. And that is what happened. I think one of the really interesting things during this period in the 1890s, and we read about it in the chapter, is the church's movement away from block voting, from just having members supporting individuals that were approved or or seen as being the church's representative, to members having to make individual choices and being able to make those choices without feeling any sense of pressure or compelment to support the church's candidate. So in many ways, what we're seeing here are the baby footsteps of a fully open, fully liberalized, fully individual experience of politics. And women are right there leading the charge and involved in in all sorts of efforts to secure their right to be heard and to be represented. So I just think it's a very interesting period as someone who's not an American to gain these insights into how it came to be the way it is in Utah. There had to be sensibilities, and Emmeline felt it too. She said, some women on our Relief Society board are very strong in this party, and I'm going to join the other one and give them some backing so we have balance, and let's not let one talk over the other. We've got to allow our openness of viewpoint. 
because in their hearts, the church was first, but they could see that engaging in the political scene was part of the maturing of the church, allowing its people to manage their affairs, to save their temples, to save their churches. One of my favorite illustrations of the two-party system in Utah was in 1896. That was the first election in Utah when women could run for office after they achieved statehood. And two of the candidates for the Utah State Senate in 1896 were Martha Hughes Cannon, who was running as a Democrat, and her husband, Angus Cannon, who was running as a Republican. And actually, Emmeline Wells ran in that election also as a Republican. Martha Cannon received enough votes to be elected to the Senate, but her husband, Angus, and Emmeline Wells did not. But I just always enjoyed that story that within her own household, Martha was a Democrat and her husband, Angus, was a Republican. And with Martha's election in 1896, she actually became the first female state senator in the United States, which is a nice distinction to have. And improving the validity of women having the franchise, she began to campaign for some really important issues, like starting a public health department for the state and looking after children and women in the work scene, that they would not be working these long, long hours, but be given some protections. So she was an excellent legislator. In contrast, she was a senator in the legislature. Two women who were not members of the church were elected to the House of Representatives, and one of them campaigned for what was called the high hat bill that people would be fined if they wore large hats to theaters and public lectures. So there were different levels of seriousness taken by these women in their political freedoms. I do think it's such a neat heritage and legacy to be part of. And I Mm -hmm. so appreciate the focus that is given in Saints, that people can learn more about that and understand the importance. Well, another important topic covered in this chapter is that of genealogical research. And uh, we have this great opening story with Anton Lund, who's visiting branches of the church in Germany, of all places. And he has this message about the revelation about temple ordinances and the importance of gathering records. How significant was this for the brothers and sisters of the church? Well, I think it's a turning point. It was major. And if you look at what happened in the church eight, ten years later, they were beginning to form genealogical societies. The Relief Society was backing lectures and classes in how to do research with that wonderful advocate, Susie Young Gates, leading out in organizing women and connecting them with national organizations, but particularly in learning how to do their own research. It was a wonderful beginning. And I'm very happy that this story is told at the beginning of this chapter because my ancestors were early church members in Germany. And I like to think that this emphasis on study your own people, explore your own ancestral line was a wonderful gift, a spiritual gift to me and my people. And I was just thinking as I was reading it, how wonderful that would have been for the saints to be thinking about how they could connect generations through temple work. 
And then how hard that would have been for the saints in Europe when the church leaders needed to slow down emigration to Utah and how hard that would have been to have that desire to link families through temple ordinances and then not be able to have that opportunity to travel to Utah at that time would have been really difficult, I think. Of course, there were thousands of Latter-day Saints around Europe, in Germany and Britain mostly, but in Scandinavian countries and in other locations, who are now being asked to slow down. So there's a disconnect between gather your genealogical records, but then also please don't come here yet. You know, it's not a good time. So those are very difficult decisions for Latter-day Saints to deal with. You know, on the one hand, they're being asked to stay there, build up the country, but also to link their families and to perform ordinances for them wasn't in place. And so I can only imagine the challenge that that was for these saints. I take that to heart because 30 years ago, my husband and I were opening one of the missions in West Africa. And we thought at that time, these people will never be able to travel to where temples are presently. But in the interim, we have seen four temples announced and being built in areas where we served, bringing the temples to the people. That's the vision. And we have to thank our ancestors for getting us started on this very important track. That's amazing. And to see how they handled it, because there's people that are dealing with the same issues today. I appreciate that that story, Terry. And this is the new gathering, isn't it? It's, it's not so much okay. the physical gathering. It's the move now to the spiritual gathering and the gathering of ancestors, of gathering of souls to Christ. And of course, there are still members who wanted and ultimately did emigrate But this is one of the first turning points for the church globally, where it's build up the church in your areas. And we'll continue over the course of this volume to to see how this theme emerges of, of building up Zion where you are. Cherry and Tiffany, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your expertise and your time and helping us understand more about the people and the experiences in this chapter of Saints. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A pleasure. And thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. Until next time, I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening.